Hey, I'm Jay Akunzo, and this is Unthinkable. Trusting your intuition at work often feels like a leap. In our culture, intuition is interpreted as some kind of mythical muse that strikes out of nowhere, or some kind of biological instant answer generator that sits in your subconscious. However you look at it, most interpretations of intuition make it feel out of your control. You have it, it's important, but you can't really use it proactively. On this show, however, we like to explore intuition through a different lens. If you look at the root word of intuition, it's intuir in Latin, and that simply means knowledge from within. So I think that intuition is the process of finding knowledge from within. It's the process of thinking for yourself. And that's very much a tool that you can use proactively to do more exceptional work. So last time we talked about how to start using that tool. It's not about making some giant leap. It's not about the perception of what it is to do something better. It's about building a bridge, piece by piece, plank by plank, a bridge from average to exceptional using that tool that is your intuition, thinking for yourself instead of running out there and finding somebody else's answer or idea. So how do you use your intuition? How do you think for yourself? You ask yourself the right questions. And the first question to ask, the one that we asked last time, was simple but powerful. What is your aspiration? Think of that leap metaphor again. To build a bridge across, you first throw an anchor to the other side, and it plants firmly in the ground, and then you can start laying all those planks across. Well, that that anchor is your aspiration. What is your aspirational anchor? In our quest to break from all the abundance of conventional thinking out there and do something better, that aspiration feels pretty damn important. It serves as a sort of filter for all the common wisdom out there. We can, we can press it through that filter and make sense of it. Does the conventional thinking help me achieve my aspiration or not? Just think of some of the past stories that we've told already and how their aspirations help them make sense of or even break from conventional thinking. There was Mike Brown, founder of Death Wish Coffee. The day of reckoning is upon us! My brothers, what is life if not to die a glorious death? The conventional wisdom in his line of work is to roast a bean called Arabica. Another type of bean, called Robusta, is frowned upon. But Mike aspired to create the world's strongest coffee, and Robusta beans yield a higher caffeine content than Arabica. So looking at the world through Mike's lens, instead of following the convention, it actually does make more sense that he continued to roast this frowned-upon bean, Robusta coffee. And he did that, despite all the warnings he got from coffee experts. And today, Deathwish is a thriving business. Another story we told was Alec Brownstein. People sometimes come to me and I'm like, that is a great idea. You should make that. The executive creative director at Dollar Shave Club. And then it's always like, well, but I don't know. And what about this? And what about that? And I'm just like, who cares? Just make it. It's great. Go make it. And then the next time I see them, I'll say, did you make it yet? Have you made it? Why haven't you made it? It's great. 
He shared a story from really early in his career, back when he was looking for his first job at a creative agency. Now, the conventional wisdom in corporate job searching is that it's who you know. You get connections and you get in the door as a result of those connections. But Alex's aspiration was to work for one of the top five creative agencies in New York City. And he knew absolutely nobody there. And worse, he knew that those people would be really hard to put in his network and take forever to do so if he succeeded. So instead of hitting local events and trying to network over coffee, Alec launched a Google AdWords campaign to target those five creative directors in a really atypical attention-grabbing way. This Google job experiment helped him land his dream job without actually having a strong network. And he's now in that leadership role I mentioned at Dollar Shave Club, which was acquired for over a billion dollars. One more example of a story we've told where an aspiration really affected somebody's work was the story of Larry Smith, founder of Smith Magazine. I came from magazines where we had fancy staff retreats and took town cars home after nine o'clock back to Brooklyn, right? So I thought, you know, you had to get the big money, the fancy designers, and uh, I couldn't get it. Conventional wisdom in his industry is that building a successful magazine means picking a niche, going really deep and being an authority in that niche, and publishing amazing articles from industry experts, whether those articles are a few hundred words or maybe a few thousand. But Larry aspired to build a media company using user-generated content, and so that aspiration shifted his focus. He didn't have a niche, he didn't use authoritative writers, and he certainly didn't publish long-form pieces. Instead, he created the six-word memoir project, stories from users just six words long about their lives. And this made it much easier for people who weren't on staff and weren't professional writers to begin contributing. Larry is now a globally touring speaker, a best-selling author, and he runs a successful media brand as a result. In all of these cases, your aspiration is the first step on that bridge from average work to exceptional work. The first step that you take is to throw that anchor to the other side. And that leads to another piece on the bridge, because an aspiration is personal. So it forces you to answer another question. Why you? What is it about you that will help you succeed? Because everybody has access to the same tools and the same information. It's all right at our fingertips. But nobody has access to you. In other words, you are your unfair advantage. Some days you're the pigeon. And some days you are the statue. That's Jay Bear. I think that's a particularly <laughs> adept mindset. Uh, and it's one I really try and follow. I really try to not get too excited when things go well. And I definitely don't get too down when things go poorly. I get a little frustrated sometimes and and anxious as we all do when you get overloaded, but I try and stay pretty even keel. Jay is a speaker, an author, and the president of Convince and Convert, which is a marketing and customer service agency. And that quote we just heard is from a poster in his office given to him by his mom. Jay is a guy who appreciates a great quote. You like to say it's not the wand, it's the wizard. What does it actually mean? Well, I've been in technology and online marketing now for almost 25 years. And I have seen many cycles of excitement about new technology, right? It was 
It was the web and email marketing and search marketing and paid search marketing and banner ads and social and content marketing and influencer marketing, right? It's the same story with the same hype cycle every single time. And and in each of those circumstances, there's this promise that if you buy this new thing, that if you license this platform, that if you pay this low monthly fee, Jay, that somehow you will magically become a better marketer and a better human being. And it's not true, right? The, the software is only as good as the people at, at the controls. And so I always feel like you need to figure out who you are, what you want to do, and how to be the best you you can be, and then get the right software to amplify that. But this idea that, that a computer is going to solve your problems is really misplaced. Why is it so easy or why do people tend to focus on the, the want? Because they don't actually know what it is that they need to do. You see this all the time when people are trying to decide what software platform to purchase. They sit and do a bunch of demos and read some sales sheets and look at a bunch of bullet points about features and benefits. And based on that, they they pick a platform. But what they really should do is say, all right, what exactly am I looking to accomplish? And is software even necessary or even the right way to accomplish that? The reason people put all of their fate essentially in the wand is that they really don't know the wizard well enough. Content marketing's cup runneth over with advice from other people. But in the deluge, something precious has started sinking to the bottom. You. Jay's a guy most people in marketing believe has a magic touch. But ask him about his secrets, and he'll share no spells, no pages ripped from ancient books. Instead, the impressive intimacy he shows with internet incantations is thanks to his influences as an infant. My mom was a high school teacher and a, and a damn good one uh, and was very, very good in, in front of a classroom and in groups and as a leader and was always the head of this and head of that. My dad was an entrepreneur and was the president of a lot of different things. My grandfather was uh, a very well-known uh, business owner in the Midwest. And, and so you don't think of that necessarily as, as raw materials for your own life, but you look back and say, oh, yeah. Like just just osmosis, you you were kind of head, kind of pointed in that direction from yeah. from the very beginning. And I guess for me, it started fairly early. I, I was the even in high school, I was always the MC, right? I was even as a sophomore, I was the guy, you know, doing the hosting of the talent show and the pep assembly and all that stuff. Was there a moment where you're like, there there's an MC opening or a, a host of some school show that you're like, oh, I really want to get that. You know, it's funny you ask that. I don't really remember how that started. I, I don't I don't remember saying I'd sure like to do this. I think it was more we were in a student council meeting and I was one of the student council nerds and somebody said, well, somebody has to be the assembly. Jay will do it and just sort of gave me the microphone. I don't think there was a big uh, RFP process <laughs> at that time. Jay is one of the most prolific creators in content marketing today. He writes, he speaks, he hosts podcasts, video series, and a whole lot more. And it feels like every single week, somehow, he conjures up a new content series. Hi, I'm Jay Bear. Welcome to Jay Today, my brand new video series. I'll be bringing you episodes on a nearly daily basis, all about social media, marketing, and business. I'm here in San Diego. Jay is constantly creating. And what makes his work magic is not the wand he waves. It's the hooded man himself. 
Jay Bear is his best self when he's talking about barbecue. You're a certified barbecue competition judge. I am. Uh, how did that happen? So I, my dad owned a steakhouse when I was a kid. And so I was raised sort of uh, for, for a time behind the bar of the steakhouse. My job was to keep the jukebox playing. He'd give me a roll of quarters every morning and be like, okay, you're in charge of the jukebox, which is why I know so much about uh, kind of mid-70s uh, rock, like Helen Reddy and, uh, and Mud Honey and people like that. Like I really wow. have a degree of knowledge about that era that I frankly shouldn't possess. Uh, and, and so I was, I was raised, you know, in, in that environment. My grandfather was always a, a big outdoor backyard kind of barbecue grilling hobbyist. And, and so I just always liked meat and fire. And I sort of got interested a few years ago. There was a television show on for a short time called Barbecue Pitmasters. And loved that show. Thought it was really interesting because it actually followed people documentary style on the competition barbecue circuit. I'm like, wow, well, nothing's better than competition barbecue. You sit around all weekend and drink beer and you know make food for prize money. This seems like the greatest thing ever. And so I got some friends of mine interested in it. And we thought about starting a competition team, but everybody's travel schedule kind of got in the way. And then I ended up interviewing one of the stars of that show uh, for my book Utility. And so got to meet him and learn some of the ins and outs of the of the of the circuit. Uh, and then decided while I couldn't go on the circuit to compete just because of my schedule, I could at least on occasion participate as a judge. And so I went to judging school. Barbecue school is, of course, the very best kind of school. Uh, and learned all kinds of crazy stuff about what is and what is not quality competition barbecue. Yeah, there's probably a ton of nuance and, and hidden things that, that the average griller doesn't know. Like for me, I'm like, okay, I know a grill is better than the stovetop. Check on that box. But right. then I'm going to throw right. a bunch of just store-bought sauce all over it and probably yeah. ruin it in your eyes. Like what are some of the things that we might not know that you've gotten way deep into knowing? So one of the things that's uh, – different about competition barbecue from backyard barbecue is is how competition thinks about tenderness. Uh, and where that is most acutely different is in ribs. So in backyard or even at a restaurant, people are commonly will commonly say, these ribs are so terrific because they just fall off the bone, right? And and tenderness, right. tenderness is sort of like a, a badge of honor. Like these ribs are so tender. Well in competition, that's actually if you if you served a, a rib like that that quote unquote fell off the bone, that would be a one out of ten score. That and so what they want in competition is when you bite the rib, it creates the semicircle, the half moon bite mark. And and the meat is supposed to tug away from the bone just a little bit, but not fall off the bone. <laughs> that's crazy. Isn't there like there's some rule on the containers or something like that too that like they yeah. serve it in? And and this one <laughs> you 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 feel, you feel like there's a level of of trustworthiness uh, in the world until you go to competition barbecue school and they tell you how people cheat at competitive barbecue. What? Right. Exactly. That's what I said. What? So here's what happens, or or what can happen. So every time somebody turns in their their entry, uh, all competitors use the same white uh, styrofoam clamshell uh, like you'd get for a takeout to go box. And they're issued those by the competition. So they're all the same. Well, what they teach you to look for is when they when they bring it to the judging table, they open up the clamshell uh, and you've got to scour, scan the inside of it to make sure there's no mark like a like a finger fingernail mark or uh, a tiny scratch because that's called marking the box. Uh -huh. And what can happen is a competitor can say 
to you, hey, Jay, I know that they randomize which uh, entries go to which judge, but if by chance you see one with a mark in the top left corner, that's mine. Yeah. Give that all nines. Same, uh, for the same reason, if you see uh, even a tiny little piece of a toothpick or a little broken off plastic fork tine or a tiny little bit of aluminum foil in the box that looks stray, it's an automatic disqualification because while it may just very well be a, a stray piece of tinfoil, it could be marking the box and you are DQ'd and out. Wow. So the average American does not get to the level of nuance and detail that you've gotten to with barbecue. Like, is there, this might be a little bit of uh, mental gymnastics, but is there something that you've taken away from judging barbecue and actually like found that improving or changing something about your work in marketing and customer support? There's, there's two things that I, I really believe are simpatico on that question, Jay. One is I love the fact that in barbecue school, they teach you that all scores are between zero and zero is a disqualification, between zero and nine. And of course, in every uh, school, hand goes up. In my school, it was, of course, me. And I said, hey, by the way, why is it zero to nine? Why is it not zero to 10? Yeah. And my instructor said, because there's no such thing as perfect barbecue. Mm. I love that. Oh, my. As and a writer... Like, Oh, uh, writer, as a speaker, oh, as a podcaster, yeah. as yeah, I was like, oh. So I need to get, I need to have my mom make me another sign which says there's no such thing as a perfect blank. And the second thing I would say is barbecue is really tricky as a as a competition because you do have to do the four meats, and they have very specific turn-in times, and it's based on how fast meats cook, right? So chicken usually is due at ten. Uh, pork is usually due at 11, ribs are due at 11.30, brisket are, is due at 12. I mean, and, and, and the thing is, they have a clock. And if you're even one second late for a turn in, you are disqualified. I mean, there's no, I mean, they have a big digital clock and you see people running, literally running, sprinting with a styrofoam box filled with brisket all the time. And, and that adherence to a schedule and specificity around time and execution is really good training for content marketing at scale. There's lots of wisdom, and I'm throwing up my air quotes now, my audio air quotes. There's lots of wisdom in the speaking community about how you should be on stage, what is appropriate, what is proper, how, how should you say things, how should you carry yourself, how should you move on stage. There's, there's as many speakers as there are, there's as many opinions about how you should speak. But the problem is, every time you try to be somebody else or take somebody else's advice and take it literally, then you are by definition not being yourself. And the thing that kills speakers is artifice because the audience can yeah. see it a mile away. When you're trying to speak like somebody else, it just doesn't come off as, as believable. And so I've had uh, lots of great mentors on the speaking side of my career and really, really fortunate to have them. And, and from the very beginning, uh, several of them said to me, you have, for whatever reason, a degree of likability and relatability that you can't teach. So don't polish that out of your act. Don't don't try to get so perfect and polished and stylized and specific that you lose what makes you different to begin with. And I think mm -hmm. that was really good advice, and I've tried to follow it. Yeah, yeah. I, it's funny. I I, uh, I was rehearsing a speech, and I was really trying to nail the opening, and I I found myself 
I was like I was like the playlist that starts with ACDC and continues with all like hair <laughs> like hair metal like it was just all you should see rise. my hockey playlist yes I'm the DJ for my son's hockey team and it's it's nothing but uh, uh, Iron Maiden and ACDC <laughs> so that was like my my op- my practice speech speeches up until that point and I was like I have to get more nuance with the way I, I use the volume and intensity of my voice so let me record myself a couple times and I sent it to a mutual friend of ours Andrew Davis and I was like what do you think I tried to use more pauses here because i was like listening to other speakers and he just shoots back an email i'll never forget his one line he goes you sound like william shatner (laughs) and it's like because i'm an energetic guy and what i was trying to do was figure out in again air quotes what works instead of what could work for me you know the goal was the same i want to get to a better tempo or something like that but i was removing who i was and looking at others and what they did and just trying to copy and then i was just a cheap fast simile yeah he just has to it has to feel natural and practice can can make it feel natural make it more feel natural but there's a boundary of even with practice what will feel natural to you and i find that some people both in speaking and, and also in writing will will try to push it beyond what their natural boundaries of comfort are and the results are typically not what they're looking for remember wands can change hands they're commodities they can be replicated and copied But if you do your work by unleashing not a wand, but the wizard, you're not doing things that other people can do. You're doing things that only you can do. In an era positively overflowing with expert advice, intuition is the ability to think for yourself. 